Welcome to Craft Impact, the podcast where we host real conversations to inspire real impact. As the craft sector continues to grow, we need to have real conversations on how we can collectively drive more measurable impact and what that means. Each month, we connect with an impact leader who sheds material insight on how we can do better. We'll also give voice to artisans and grassroots organizations doing the real work of driving impacts on the ground. I'm Harper Poe. And I'm Benita Singh. Welcome to Craft Impact. Hello, Harper. Hey, Benita. I'm excited to be chatting with you again today. Yes, I'm super excited to be continuing to host these conversations with you in the new year. And I'm also particularly excited about the conversation that we're going to be having today. Same. It's a good one. There's a lot of information. Um, It's a little daunting, but um, I think it's super important. And I'm really excited to bring this new voice into these conversations. Indeed. Um, It's also perhaps even a little controversial. So the topic that we're going to be talking about today is the topic of degrowth. And we have an expert in the field of degrowth, Erin Remblins, who I know you and I just thoroughly enjoyed our conversation with her before the holiday. But before we get to our interview with Erin, it would be great to hear from you, Harper, about your own introduction to the world of degrowth and why you think it's important for the craft sector to talk about. Absolutely. I've been really focused on this idea of net impacts over the past several years and exploring the question of how can we continue to provide positive social and cultural impact through craft without extending beyond our planetary boundaries? Our businesses and organizations don't exist in silos and our work towards social impact does in fact affect the environment. And as you'll hear from Aaron, we're living way beyond our planetary boundaries and we really need to change course for the sake of our planet and humanity. Yes, accounting for our environmental impact and carbon footprint, as we've been seeing and reading, is really becoming not just a moral imperative, but increasingly a legal imperative for all industries, including craft, which is perhaps somewhat somewhat difficultly inherently about creating more stuff. And what's been really fascinating for me to learn about is um, this idea that there's been this implicit assumption that craft organizations are generating positive impacts on all fronts, social and environmental. But without measuring it, we can't say for sure that that is the case. And we really need to hold the craft industry to the same standards of measurement that we're asking all other industries to hold themselves to. Exactly. Which is also a bit of a shout out to our first episode with social impact guru, Kevin Starr of the Malaga Foundation, who really pushed us as a sector to do a better job with impact measurement. We were so grateful to have him as our first guest. And if this is your first time tuning in, we encourage you to take a listen to that first episode. And turning to our similarly esteemed guest for today, Harper and I were grateful to have the opportunity to sit down with Erin Remblance, an expert on climate change, degrowth, and the founder of Rebiz, a lab for leaders who are ready to build regenerative regenerative post-growth world. And I have to say that our fascinating conversation did go on for a bit, and editing it to a palatable 40 minutes was quite hard. 
<laughs> yes, it was, but we promise you it's worth the listen. We cover everything from how can craft organizations produce less and generate greater impact to what does the so social justice dimension of climate change mean for artists and communities to how the enclosure of the commons really transformed the role craft played in communities centuries ago. I learned so much and I'm hopeful our listeners will feel the same. Hi, Erin. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. I've been following your content closely over the past year or so. I think I initially discovered your work through my interest in donut economics. Um, we'd love it if you could just introduce yourself. Where are you in the world and what led you to your work becoming a degrowth thought leader? Yeah, no, thank you for having me on. It's um, great to be with you guys. Um, I am in Sydney, Australia, and I was just a climate activist already. So sort of around 2018, I think I read the IPCC special reporting to 1.5 degrees of warming. That sort of hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, are you serious? <laughs> like we are, this does not look good and we are not doing enough about it. So from that time on, I've been trying to do whatever I can to help people become more aware of actually how dire it is. Because I, I just feel like there's a general sense that things are bad, but not that bad, or we'd be doing something about it. Um, and through that research and that activism, I found degrowth and became really passionate about it because I think there's a little bit of carbon tunnel vision when you're in um, the climate change space where everything's just about what can we do to um, put as little carbon into the atmosphere as possible or to, you know, draw it down. Um, and it becomes a little bit technology focused and um, to the exclusion of the other planetary boundaries that we're exceeding, of which there's five and so it was really powerful me, powerful for me to discover degrowth, which really is what we need to be doing, even if you're only interested in climate change, but especially if you care about the health of the planet in total. Thanks, Erin. We're really excited to be having this conversation with you today because we see a need to question the common impact strategies of the craft sector, which, as we know, have tended to focus primarily on social impact through the production of physical goods and it often overlooks a common assessment of environmental or cultural implications. Um, there's often this implicit assumption that all handcrafted product has positive environmental impact, but we know that that's not always the case. And we also know that globally, we are far exceeding our planetary boundaries. So we wanted to explore this idea of degrowth for the craft sector and really dive into this question around, can we continue to provide social impacts without continuing to extend beyond our planetary boundaries? So we'd love to start with the obvious question, which is what is degrowth? So I like to define degrowth in two ways. Um, the first is probably the most common definition that you'll come across and probably the most relevant to the countries that we all live in. Um, and that first definition is the planned and democratic reduction of material and energy throughput in over-consuming nations while um, addressing global justice and improving societal well-being. Um, so, you know, there's a couple of elements there. It, it's planned as opposed to collapse. You'll often hear people say degrowth coming whether we want it or not. And it's like, well, no, that's collapse. Degrowth is about planning for um, using less energy and, and fewer materials. Democratic, so that we're not talking about some totalitarian or authoritarian type uh, government who just tells us what we can and can't have. We can do this through 
very democratic processes, not sort of faux democracies we have at the moment through citizens' assemblies and, you know, really community decision-making. And we find there's plenty of research to show that when we do leave it to citizens, informed citizens, they do propose solutions that are in line with degrowth policies. So, you know, there's not, it's not like we need to change human nature to get to degrowth. Like people do want to do the right thing. We just don't have these right structures in place at the moment. Uh, so plan democratic reduction. So if you're exceeding five, or sorry, six of nine planetary boundaries, which we are at the moment, and if Earth overshoot day falls on the 2nd of August, which it did this year, after which for the rest of the year we're stealing from future generations, we probably need to reduce the materials and energy that we're using if we want to achieve genuine sustainability. Like we can't just level off at the energy and materials we're using at the moment and things will be okay. We actually have to use a lot less of it. And I said, um, so this uh, Earth overshoot day falling on the 2nd of August, that is a global average. If you broke it down by country, the USA, um, it's early or mid-March and Australia, it's late March, which means that the USA is using, you know, five planet Earths each year and Australia is using 4.5 planet Earths each year. Um, and there's probably 60 or 70 countries who are using more than one planet Earth each year. It's just that there's maybe 100 countries who aren't using um, an entire planet Earth within a year. And so we get a global average of um, we're using 1.75 planet Earths in a year. So we need to reduce what we're using to get back into um, a sustainable volume of energy and material. Um, and then we can talk about steady state. So degrowth is sort of a phase. It's a, it's a step in getting back to the carrying capacity of the planet. Under this definition, degrowth applies to what I call over-consuming nations. Some people might call them the global north or western or wealthy countries or high-income high nations. Mm. Um, but I think that over-consuming really recognises the fact that we're <laughs> using more than our fair share of things. Um, and so if you went to the Earth Overshoot Day website, you could see by country where, where the countries fall and how much they're consuming. And I believe any country that's using more than one planet earth per year is probably consuming too much so i guess degrowth allows us to increase the material and energy footprint of countries who aren't using an entire planet earth each year mm. um without exceeding more of the planetary boundaries so i guess that's the global justice element like we we're doing what's right to enable other people to improve their standard of living um and social well-being so Degrowth can sound really frightening if you've been led to believe that we need economic growth to um, to improve our quality of life and those sorts of things. But um, the truth is that maybe for three or four decades, economic growth has not been linked to quality of life. And so there's plenty of things we could do that would actually increase people's quality of life while reducing energy and material throughput. So that's an element of um societal well-being um the second definition of degrowth which i think is really important too is um it is a decolonization of the imaginary and um and a, an implementation of other possible worlds so recognizing that there's sort of a this idea that we all need economic growth in every country every year for uh, you know it's the only way to live and it really is destroying cultures around the world it's not allowing other forms of community to develop. And um, degrowth is just about moving away from that concept. So D can mean down. 
in Latin and or can also mean away. And um, that second definition is sort of away from growth, which I think is a really important aspect of degrowth too. Yeah, I love that second definition. Um, you kind of spoke to this, but, you know, I, I imagine a lot of people get very freaked out feeling it means recession, cycling progress. Anything else that you would add that you would kind of say to people when they have this probably very common pushback? Yeah, I mean, we get it all the time. It's yeah. it's really funny. I wrote an article um, with a friend last year about degrowth. No, let's not call it something else. And after I published it, I people shared with me other articles that had been written by sort of more talented degrowthers than I am, all of right meaning the same thing. Like, no, the name doesn't need to be changed, and this is why we use the name. So you know, it does come up a lot, and um, and we feel the need to defend the term. But it was it was deliberately chosen to be provocative, to not be co-opted by the status quo, to not enable the growth machine to take it and turn it into the continuation of business as usual. So yeah, like it is, it is deliberately provocative, and um, you know, I think that's useful. I think that serves a purpose. I also think that it's honest. You know, like. Uh, we can't continue to grow and actually we do need to reduce the materials that we're using. And so if people don't like the term degrowth, I think there's an element of perhaps it's because they don't like what we need to do. I'm pretty I'm pretty comfortable with the term and I, I understand that we've all been told economic growth is good, but I think that actually it's not. It's, it's the more we grow our economies, the more we destroy our environments. So if people think the term degrowth is not good maybe we need to address their um their understanding of the term economic growth maybe that's the issue rather than the term degrowth that's actually a perfect segue to another point we wanted to discuss with you which is this notion it particularly in the craft sector that we need economic growth to solve poverty um and yeah. this obviously relates directly to the craft sector that strives to achieve social impact through economic growth and more specifically through the production and sale of physical goods. So in your opinion, and applying all of your expertise to the craft sector, what would be some alternatives to economic growth in solving the bottom line issue for our sector, which is to get more money into the hands of global artisans? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's no sector really that's probably been um, able to avoid the massive overreach of this current economic system. And, and so craft has been brought into it too um one of the one of the defining characteristics of capitalism is that um it makes things artificially scarce and it takes away things that were previously available to everyone and and encloses them so that they only become available they become commodified and you kind of get them through paying for them and um and so things that we used to do for a hobby now we have to monetize them usually to be able to or often to be able to just make ends meet. And um, I feel like maybe that's, if we look, and you guys might know this better than I do, but if we look back to the historic roots of craft, was it something people just did because they enjoyed it and it gave them a sense of, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the term flow, where the level of challenge and enjoyment you get from an activity is just 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 perfect and you lose yourself in that activity that you're doing and time just flies past it's that sort of real element of happiness and contentment while you're doing something and I wonder if that used to be why people did craft it was just 
pleasure and enjoyment and now it's become a hustle and a side gig for lots of people and potentially their main gig but they've had to turn it into a commodity that they can sell in order to survive you know earn a living that type of phrase it's bigger than any one sector which is I always come back to we need to change the system (laughs) and um, you know there's a there's a gazillion things we could do if we really had the momentum behind us like Step one in implementing degrowth is to provide everyone with universal basic services. So um, everyone should have access to healthcare and education, like high quality public education. You can provide everyone with high quality public transport, um, you know, housing. Everyone should have a right to to a basic level of housing. Um, you can do even more. You could provide everyone with a certain quota of water and electricity and internet each year. You could set up community gardens everywhere so that people had access to um, free and quality fruit and vegetables. So, you know, there's all of these things that we could do if we really sat down and thought about what is the best thing for our economy to do to serve the needs of people within the means of the planet rather than what is the best thing we can do to drive capital growth. You know, like when you change the objectives of what the economy is trying to achieve, you find different solutions. It's, it's really cool to think about, actually. Yeah, I think, um, you know, encouraging all of these global artisans to kind of get into this commodified craft market has really done a disservice um, because it's like, you know, the nature of these products and the techniques and production methods, it's, you know, it's all handmade. And um, I think the sector has been trying to scale it and connect it to these um, large global fashion and home decor markets. And um, it's been hard to do that. I think like along the way, there's been so many challenges to like grow capacity and scale. And I think, you know, part part of that is because like what you said earlier, like these things were never intended to scale. These are things that, um, you know, they like a, a like a, a weaver in Guatemala or Mexico, like the way they do their embroidery on their tops and their skirts or their dresses, like that's because that's what their tribe does or their community. They learned it from the grandmother. It's something that's passed yeah. down. Yeah. And they do it to identify who they are um, and like the community that they belong to. And then maybe for like more utilitarian things, you know, they form a spoon so they can use it to cook so after you know decades of developing the sector like how much better off are these artisans um like the ones that are actually making these goods yeah and it's and it you may not be able to solve it at the sector level because it is because of this element of capitalism that requires enclosure requires taking things that used to be available to everyone so you know it sort of started in the 16 1700s with enclosure of the commons where people used to have access to land and that access to land provided them with much of what they needed to be able to live a good life you know and once you take that land from people and then they need to sell their labor to be able to um in return receive a wage which then they can use the wage to buy the things they used to be able to get off the land that they had access to like it it might not be able to be solved at the sector level it might you know it's potentially something that can only be solved really at the highest level. Most of the economic growth goes to people in the global north and very little of it goes to people in the global south. Imagine they're just getting by. (laughs) There's something, what is their figure? Um, I think it's half of the world's population live on less than $5 a day. 
Um, and so that's 4 billion people who, and that's four US dollars a day. And it's, it's uh, called um, purchasing power parity. So it's what you could buy in the US with $5 a day, not what $5 US would buy in one of these global South countries a day. So, you know, that would be tough. I don't, I wouldn't, I don't know how. Tough. Yeah, that's a, you know, it's a pretty big ask. So that's half of the world's population who I don't think would find day-to-day living particularly easy, even after years and years of economic growth. Yeah. Um, I read your piece about the Kerala model, and I think that's a, a good segue to talk about um, that and like how that has been successful and if that kind of model could potentially scale to other countries. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, Kerala is an amazing example of what could be what is possible when you put people people and social justice and uh, I don't know if Kerala's quite got the right balance with the environment yet, but they're in a position to do that better than um, some of the global north countries. Um, it's just a wonderful example of, of centering the right priorities. So, and literally academics call it the Kerala model because it's been studied so much because, <laughs> because of its high um, human development index and also sustainability index. So it's a state in India. Um, it's got about 35 million people. Oh. And even though it's just a state, not a country, um, it got included on a sustainability development index that I saw and it ranked 11th in the world um, because it's so unique. It was included on this um, index. So that's, you know, that's that's really high for a state. Yeah. You know, it doesn't necessarily have its own access to currency um, and, you know, I just think it's an incredible result. So it's got 35 million people, so it's bigger than Australia, um, just this one state, and it's CO2 emissions. I don't know if um, if this will mean much to people, but it's about 2.8 tonnes per capita, and where I am in Australia, we're about 16 tonnes per capita. I think the US is about the same, 16 or 17 tonnes per capita. So they're able to do a lot um, with very little environmental footprint, Um I'll just run through some of their impressive results. So they're really high on the human development index. They're very high on the sustainable development index, like I just mentioned. They've got the highest daily wages in India. They have very strong labor um, and trade unions in Kerala, which is part of the reason they've been able to um, achieve such strong results. Um, They've got the highest literacy rates in all of India at 94%. All oh. villages and cities are electrified and they've been awarded the best governed state in India with the lowest rates of corruption. They also have the lowest rates of poverty in India. Now, the rates that I saw were 0.71%, which I don't know if maybe it's a separate or different measure to what we use here in Australia, but the rates of poverty in Australia are 13%. So it's an incredible result. And lots of decisions are made at the very local level in Kerala. So they can make those decisions. The people who are involved make the decisions and it just sort of flows that way. Um, so, yeah, it's resulted in higher government spending on, on education, healthcare, and poverty reduction over the last 100 years or so. It's, re- it's you know, very cool example for us all to follow. Absolutely. That's amazing. Um, I'd be interested to know if there is some element of, craft in 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 some of those communities um and like how that how that works yeah and I, i'm sure that there would be there's um a really cool poverty reduction scheme uh Kudambashri, um and it's this um poverty reduction scheme that's been in place for about 25 years and it's really and it's about 
specifically reducing um, poverty for women. So one woman per household can be a part of a kudambashri and they have access to, um, well, they group their funds. So it's called a thrift and spend and everyone sort of combines their money. And when they have enough money, they choose who gets to invest that little bit of money that's pooled and how they're going to invest it. So like sort of create their own little businesses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it might go into farming and it might go into creating meals or it might go into caring roles. But I I would assume there'd be quite a bit of craft that people are creating over there and turning into little income streams for themselves. Because of this Kudambashri, People, there's a greater representation of women in politics than there was, you know, 25 years ago before it started. So that's really cool as well. I think they're feeling empowered and, yeah, getting to understand that they can affect decisions. Yeah, that's awesome. I'd love to learn more about that. Um, you briefly talked about capitalism earlier. Um, yeah. how, do you, how do you define it? What is it and what isn't it? Yeah, so um, I take my definition from the guys who know more about this stuff than I do. So uh, in particular, this definition comes from Jason Hickel, who's an economic anthropologist. He's based in um, London, but he works uh, in Barcelona as well. Um, and, And he was very clear that we often think that markets and trade are what capitalism is. And a lot of staunch defenders of capitalism actually don't know what it is either. So they think it's just this use of money, using money to trade things, and that's not. So um, Jason Hick would say that that's been around for thousands of years and will be around for thousands of years longer, but capitalism itself is only about 500 years old. And he says there's three things that um, are so distinctive about this economic system, Um, and a couple of them I've mentioned already, but one is that it it's defined by enclosure and artificial scarcity. And so what this looked like in the past was that you take land that people used to be able to exist off and you um, privatise it essentially and kick them off the land. And now they find that if they want to survive, they have to trade the only thing they've got left, which is their labour. And so they earn a living that way. Um, So now we all do that and we think it's really normal, but it wasn't a normal way (laughs) to exist. Today it looks like also like this... um, making things that could be available to everyone and privatizing them and um, making access to them more difficult. Final element of capitalism is that it's very undemocratic. (laughs) So there are ways you can have um, more democratic economic systems, but it involves more people being involved in those decisions. So we think we've got political democracy. I'm not even sure necessarily that we do but we certainly don't have economic democracy and your political democracy doesn't work very well if we're not making decisions about the big things like what gets produced how much of it gets produced where does it go what price you know why we're producing it none of these decisions get made by the everyday person it's the person who controls the capital making those decisions I love that question why are we producing it I think that's so important if we could all you know those involved in the craft sector brands, anyone that's involved in the production of products, like why, why this product, what is it going to add? What is it going to take away? Um, I think we could all all benefit from that. So yeah, yeah, that's, sorry, can I share a quote that relates to that? It's it's a Jason Hickel quote again. I follow him and I just adore his work. He said, he's got this tweet that is 
I just love it. Just says something like, uh, if your economic system needs us to produce more and more of more and more of things that people don't want or need, and then more and more of that again each year, maybe you need a new economic system. You know, like it's we're we're producing all this stuff just so the system doesn't collapse. It was like, well, it's probably going to lead to collapse anyway, right? Like we're really at the boundaries of the planet now. Actually, we're exceeding six of those boundaries, but we think that we should keep growing the economy and, and keep. I don't know, trawling more fish and cutting off more mountaintops to mine what's underneath and um, burning more rainforests and or logging more rainforests, all these sorts of things. Like it just really doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah, that, that, that's a great quote. Um, so I wanted to touch on this idea of the commons and protecting the commons. Um, in the craft sector, a product usually originates from design and motifs that are commonly quote unquote owned by indigenous communities and or tribes. Um, and without this cultural knowledge, it's just stuff. So what do you think about like cultural IP and like um, in the commons or common ownership? I think that's interesting to think about like how these communities have not been able to really benefit from this yeah uh, yeah do you know yeah yeah I do like and I think um I think without that need for us to be producing things and um earning a living and you know like just having these bills to pay and I think it starts to reward the wrong behaviors and if you took those needs away would we really want to be taking these cultural uh you know motifs or whatever whatever the correct term is from these other cultures or would we be in a position where we can allow other aspects of ourselves to take the lead and just say oh, it doesn't feel very respectful like I don't I don't think I want to do that because it's not mine it's not mine to take it belongs to them or you know if we did feel like it was still important we might do it in a really respectful way it's like this is just a really beautiful I don't know pattern or you know whatever it might be would you mind if I shared it and and then sort of ask permission to do it I think that you know there's not necessarily anything wrong with other people using it if it's okay with the you know the people who created it or now sort of um manage isn't the right word but to whose culture it belongs if they're okay with it but I don't know that that right relationship exists in a culture where we're just um constantly trying to get by and under and even if you're not like even if you're on a good salary and you don't have those financial pressures yourself your day job is probably something that gives you that pressure to turn um an item into profit and grow it as quickly as, as possible like that's a lot of people's marketing or sales jobs um at the moment created by the system so yeah like I think that if, if there was space to really think about why we're doing it and if we need to do it it may not be that we don't do it anymore, but we might do it in a different way. I don't know. Do you guys, how do you, do you think that's fair? It's so fascinating to hear you talk and to make the linkages between cultural appropriation, overproduction, um, and overgrowth. And it, it makes me think that one, one of the earlier projects I did in my career was working with a group of Kalamkari artisans in southern India and Kalamkari is the art of hand painting with vegetable dyes onto parchment paper. So if you can think of yeah. you know beautiful Indian tree of life paintings, 
um, that's often done as kalamkari, and it's most often art and something that is framed and hung up on a wall. And I worked with this group of artisans to transform that art into uh, journals that were then sold at Barnes and Noble in the thousands. And that was about 15 years ago. And I recently was purging and I had to, I had to throw them away and it felt horrible. It felt like I am taking something that was intended to be an art. And I it was, it was created into a product that was no longer art, but was a commodity for the Western world. And now has no really, unless I want to be a hoarder, um, has no home to end up at beyond the landfill. Mm. Um, so to think about how the, the the appropriation, which was of course done with permission and of course done respectfully, but at the same time was appropriated and repurposed. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was the end result of that process. Yeah. And I mean, there's so much that ends up like that. Like I feel like homes have become this place instead of production, which they would have been, 80 50 80 100 years ago and now they're just this place of consumption and we bring so much into our homes and then we get we have to chuck so much out of our homes and it's just this almost like revolving door of in out in out in out and and but we're encouraged to do it we're told that it's good for the economy like it's even though it's not good for anything much else <laughs> you know what is the economy if it's harming the environment and and yeah like sort of I don't know if destroying cultures is is a bit harsh, but really in some aspects taking advantage. You also wrote an essay around the Bolivian idea of buen vivir. And what does buen vivir mean in practice? Um, we're particularly interested in what you spoke about with regards to local markets, because in the craft sector, there's been more discussion around the potential of artisan businesses to focus on local markets for the sale of their goods. and we certainly see a lot of potential and value in local markets, but of course it doesn't work in every country. A clear example would be craft from countries with security issues such as Palestine and Afghanistan. So do you think in those cases, it makes sense to promote export and integration into a global market or to shift entirely away from the promotion or scaling of craft altogether? Yeah. So, um, I'll start with uh, Buen Viver, which is this just really beautiful concept from Bolivia, but, you know, it's it's pretty predominant in lots of the Latin American and South American countries, um, you know, who tend to be the ones who feel the environmental and social harms from continuous economic growth the most. So I think it's really a reflection of they're starting to understand that this is not working. Um, and so there's a really good example of actually El Salvador where they, their, one of their presidential candidates wanted to focus on Buen Viver rather than the, you know, the dominant economic growth um, mindset and paradigm. And he wanted to do that because he could see no benefit to continually mining for silver and gold in the country because it was making everyone sick. So I think, you know, maybe the global North countries, the overconsuming countries aren't at the same place yet because we're outsourcing the harms that come from the growth that we're pushing for, um, whereas these global South countries are feeling it already and understand that this is not 
the best way to live. So it's essentially, it's a bit like the Kerala model, like the, you know, it's not rocket science in the end. You, you do things that are good for your community. You do things that um, prioritize people's well-being um, without causing too much environmental harm. And so one of the things I really love about Buen River is they're neither socialist nor capitalist because um, of course they don't want to put capital at the heart of their economy, but they also don't want to put people at the heart of their economy. They want to put, so they call it a socio-biocentric vision where nature and other species are at the heart of the system, which is beautiful. You know, it's not very often you hear that um, sort of dialogue. And I just love that. I think that's really important. I think that our kin and um, other species really do get forgotten about, even in some of the degrowth discourse I see, it's a lot about human well-being, but there's millions of other species we should be thinking about and who feel the brunt of our decisions as well. So, um, yes, there's very much a local mindset uh, with Gwen Viver, uh, which, you know, as in with degrowth where it's much more localised and we and start to get rid of some of the long supply chains, some of the some of those global supply chains that really couldn't exist without fossil fuels, really. Um, and so, yeah, it's about sovereignty. It's about um, small-scale production, appropriate technologies, grassroots empowerments, grassroots empowerment, um, a solidarity economies, all these sorts of things are what make up um, this sort of community mindset that um, these countries are adopting. Um, or have always had um, and are trying to avoid being co-opted into the, the hegemonic, extractive, commodified economy that we see everywhere else. So in terms of what does that mean for the craft sector, look, I think that where you can do it locally, that is so much better for everyone involved and I mean and I mean that's both in terms of selling your goods but also sourcing the materials that you need for your goods um and and even I think where those goods are useful like I feel like and you guys might correct me if I'm wrong but like a lot of these skills be, uh, people have and have been passed down is because we used to use uh you know pottery they used to be the bowls that we used now we um we have them as decorative items because we can buy bowls really like a set of plates and bowls really cheap from Kmart or whatever but these are skills people used to have because we needed them to get by if we wanted to have access to material items so that's just I think that's really cool like we might actually start to find these things in our homes but being used to have a meal off and and someone that you know made it I, I think it's really I don't know, really interesting idea for the future. So if you need to reduce your material footprint and energy use, you're necessarily it sort of implies that we're producing and consuming less. So the first things that you would opt to produce and consume less of are the things that don't really serve a purpose. You know, ideally, like if we are to adopt degrowth worldwide, the things that people would say we don't need are the, I don't know, they should be decided democratically so I don't want to put words in people's mouths. But the things that we know we're going to take home and eventually we'll go in the bin not so long after or our taste will change and we'll, you know, we'll give it away or whatever. It's those things that are actually useful that people will hold on to for the longest and, and are more likely to survive those decisions around what should we produce actually, what do we need rather than what do we want or 
you know, what are we just producing for the sake of producing because it creates an income for someone? Sure. I love bringing it back to that. What are we producing and why? Yeah. Yeah. We should be asked it more often. Yeah. Right. Um, So focusing on the meta crisis, not for the faint of heart, um, how do you keep going and who are some thought leaders that you really admire that could be additional resources for our listeners? So for me, I find that when I'm feeling like anxious about all the things that I know, the best thing to do is to get active. So that's when you, I don't know, you share something online with your, like, you know, whether you're on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, just sharing it can feel helpful, even though sometimes people don't engage with it and that can be annoying as well. Um, or for me, like I, I write and I see if I can get someone to publish it and that feels like, well, at least I'm trying to get the word out there and you don't know what seeds they might plant with other people who those seeds might get watered by someone else and grow into something else. Um, so yeah, for me, just being active and trying to make other people aware, maybe it's meeting with politicians or finding a local group that has similar concerns so that at least you've got other people around you to bounce ideas off. And, and I think there's something in that having, um, a network of people that can just make you feel that little bit more sane, you know, like when you're the only one who, or you feel like you're the only one around you who cares about something, can really question whether you're just making this out to be more than it is when you've got other people that you respect around you you can go no I'm right I know I'm doing the right thing here then can focus your energies on trying to um spread the word for me the big thing is around social tipping points you know there's this research that shows when you get 25 percent of a population caring about an issue it just it just tips and very quickly becomes 75 to 100 percent of the population care about that issue so with some of these social justice and environmental um concerns and and crises not just concerns crises that we're we know exist I feel like we, you know, we just need to get more people to understand how dire it is. So that's, you know, a lot of my activism goes in that direction. Um, so thought leaders, so I've mentioned Jason Hickel already in the degrowth movement, uh, Julia Steinberger, Georgos Callas, Timothée Parikh, Samuel Alexander's in Australia. Um, who else do I follow that I really like? George Monbiot in the UK. Um yeah, I mean, I just, I follow, they're probably the big degrowth or like environmental people that I follow and then just keep reading and learning. And if you see something that looks interesting, read it and see where that takes you. They might link to a bit of more useful information that could be really interesting. Um, but yeah, it's just sort of about, because I, you sort of think, wow, I know a lot about that topic. I'm good. But actually, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And um, it's been a really interesting experience for me just to, to understand more about how the world works and and it's really not what I knew the world to be just five years ago even so um yeah I think a big thing that we can all do is to keep learning and keep educating and keep being curious and and seeking to know more I think that was the perfect note um to leave our listeners with actually it's really exciting to hear your point of view and um, kind of link it back to the craft sector. Because, you know, we all kind of get in our little like echo chambers where we listen to the same voices and yours is very different um, than what we usually hear talking about the craft sector, so. Thank you, it's been really fun um, exploring those questions with you and I hope there's some useful information in there. Um, there's a yeah, fun. I just always feel, oh good, I feel really like 
I always feel like I learned something new. I think, gosh, that I feel like everyone should know that. So <laughs> hence all my prolific sharing on LinkedIn. But yeah, I'm glad you guys are not everyone's willing to learn. So thank you for being willing to open your mind to what I'm sharing. Absolutely. And we'll we'll share a lot of the links and stuff in the show notes so people can find you and everything you referenced. Yep. Awesome. That'd be great. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Erin, so much. Thank you. Thank you for giving me your evening. I know it's nighttime over there. I appreciate it. We are so grateful to Erin for sharing her time and insight with us. I walked away from our conversation with both an expanded perspective of how we look at craft as a means to livelihood, as well as some entirely new perspectives as well. It was incredibly eye-opening to me to learn that globally, on average, we're using around 1.7 planet Earths, and in the US, we're using five. So we're obviously using way more resources than what is available. And the sooner everyone is aware of this, hopefully the sooner we can start really questioning the need to produce more. And we kept going back to this question of asking why a product is being produced um, and and or developed and what the actual outcomes would be. Indeed, I've found myself talking to others in the sector, including you for a while now about the need to create more functional product for the purpose of creating more lucrative artisan businesses. And it was particularly eye-opening to me to talk about how that element of product development, the functionality and creating products that have utility also has clear environmental implications as well, so that we're not encouraging artisan businesses to partake in our traditional wasteful cycles of consumption. After our call, we also did do some research on the Kudam Bashri model in Kerala, which Erin referenced. And in, we also did find some artisan organizations that are in fact uh, creating artisan collectives that are focused on craft. So definitely look forward to diving into that a bit more and perhaps even an upcoming topic for us to discuss on craft impact. So thank you again, Harper, for inspiring this conversation, both on craft impact and also across the sector more broadly. Thank you, Benita. And thank you, Erin, and our listeners for joining us for our second episode of Craft Impact. Till next time.